Welcome to the Treeleaf Zendo podcast. Treeleaf is a Soto Zen Sangha available anytime, anywhere at treeleaf.org. Come sit with us. It's lovely to begin our always at home, wherever you are, at home, in your true home, Ango, uh, season of peaceful abiding. Last year, I, uh, I think it was last year, every few years, I turned to Master Dogen's chapter of Shobogenzo on Ango in which uh, he specifies for monastics the very, very detailed, precise rituals and procedures that they must follow. You know Master Dogen's way. He says the left hand goes here, then you turn right, and then we light this incense, and then we bow. Very, very specific. And uh, it makes it seem as if Ango is something just for monastics. But then, at the end, Master Dogen's Ango chapter of Shobogenzo, he tells the story of Manjusri who shows up on the last day, breaking all the rules. As I was sitting, uh, we'll get to this, but he says, I was sitting in a rich man's house. And I think the other place is I was sitting in a, what was the other place? I forget the second place. And the third one is I was sitting in a bar or a bordello and everyone is shot. So they want to kick, kick him out of the community. And suddenly the Buddha appears and says, basically, where is Ango not if your heart is in peaceful abiding? We're going to see another story like that right now that also has a bordello in it. Well, I got to get to explain all this about bordellos. This this is not a license to go heading out to bordellos. Don't misunderstand it. But um, I think you all know what a bordello is, a house of ill repute, we say. That's mentioned here, too. But no, this is not a license to do just whatever you want. It has a very special meaning to it. But we're going to read today one of the most cherished sutras in Mahayana Buddhism, the Vimalakirti Nirdesa Sutra, the teachings of Vimalakirti. It's one of the few sutras that is actually not spoken directly by the Buddha, but it is spoken by someone else as the voice of wisdom that a Buddha conveys. And in this case, it's a lay person, and not just any lay person, a lay person who in this sutra, well, let's say it's a matter of he 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 bests, he 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 defeats the greatest arhats and bodhisattvas, all the famous ones. It's as if someone stepped into a ring just a a uh, regular guy from the front row steps into the ring and knocks out Muhammad Ali like that. That's the kind of image you have here from this sutra. A uh, guy who just picked up a bat, you know, never played professional baseball and hits a out of the park home run in the World Series like that. That is for And for that reason, this sutra has been beloved by laypersons for thousands of years. 
It was probably written like many Mahayana sutras, all the Mahayana sutras, almost all the sutras. It was written after the time of the Buddha, probably around the time of Jesus it was written. That's how old this is. But uh, it conveys the wisdom and heart of Buddha. Therefore, it is the words of Buddha, just like Vermilakirti speaks the words of Buddha, even though the Buddha is not really present in the, in the sutra, except a little bit at the beginning and I think at the end. Because it is about a lay person, it has been beloved by lay people to say that you can too. And your practice not only can be wonderful in the world, but you can also have riches of teaching and a depth of practice that knocks out, that hits a home run greater than the monastics. And that's us here today, aren't we? We're doing our ango out in the world. So that is why Vimalakirti Sutra has been so popular with lay folks like all of us with families and businesses and work, because that is who Vermilakirti is. There's another sutra that often goes with it, the uh, Roar of, King, uh, of Queen Shrishamala, also about a lay person. Probably do this next month or the month after too. We'll go through it all during our ango period, because it's wonderful. But I'm going to put my little Jundo stamp on it here and give you an interpretation right now of this that I'm going to say maybe a little modern, maybe not so orthodox, but I think is the actual situation of the sutra going back since the time, not only to when this was written, the actual situation of Buddhism going back to the beginning. And what is that? You have a character here, Vimalakirti, who is such an idealized image of the perfect layperson. He's pure. He never makes a mistake. Somehow he pulls it off to live out in the world, but like a saint. And the image depicted here, which I believe is basically something written by a human being, depicts someone who is saintly, who is up here. I think, however, that the reason to do that is not to say that we must be in our practice so unbelievably pure and saintly. It is to say that is where we put the highest mark and in life, let's get as close as we can. I think that's very important because let me tell you something. I think that very good Buddhists, a thousand years ago, 2000 years ago, in the time of Buddha, were pretty much just like you and me. Probably good people, probably some excellent people. I very much doubt this kind of perfect people. They were people who, like you and me, had worries about their kids, about where the next meal was coming from or how business was going, how to be honest in the business work they did, uh, when to use violence, when to maybe take a glass of wine or not take a glass of wine. Maybe some of them had addiction issues back in the day. 
they had health worries like you and me, and maybe worse because they didn't have the doctors and the hospitals that we have. These were people who faced the same challenges and questions and ambiguities in life that you and I faced. And that is true of the followers in the Buddhist time, Dogen's time, right through the centuries. And when we read Vimalakirti, we must read it as a reminder within this crazy, messed up world, our complex life, to try to come as close to that as we can. But I truly do not believe, at least not anyone I've ever met, you can get real close, but I cannot match that perfection. And if you're looking for a teacher or someone who's going to tell you how to be that perfect, you better find some other guy because you got an imperfect teacher here. Really. That doesn't mean, though, that we can do whatever the heck we want either. Like I said, it's not a license. So let's get into the sutra here and see what's going on. Okay. Here's uh, the description in chapter two. Why no chapter one, by the way, just to mention chapter one is like many sutras. We saw this, if you go back to our first uh, talk on the Heart Sutra, where there's this big scene where the Buddha's on the mountain and everybody and every wonderful creature and every bodhisattva shows up to the Buddha's and they have this, it's like the bar scene in Star Wars. It's one of those scenes and they're on the mountain and there's another scene later in the book where this happens. It's just to say that the Buddha's here and he approves all this and it's this glorious teaching and it's this big opening and okay, and then we've had that, that's scene one and now we get into the story. That's why we're on chapter two, all right? And it tells a little about who is Vimalakirti. Desiring to save others, he employed his excellent expedient of residing in the busy commercial city of Vashali. Uh, Vashali is the Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania of India, or the Marseille, or the Birmingham, England. It's a big industrial town. And uh, he was a businessman, I think, some kind of merchant or businessman. And he did quite well, apparently. Though this starts to say, oh, he has lots of money and he has a wife in a big house, but it really doesn't mean everything to him. His immeasurable riches he used to relieve the poor. First example of what I want to show to you. Many of the Buddha's followers, many of the people in Buddhism through the time of Dogen until today are people who have done quite well for themselves. And the fact of the matter is, that there were working people and there were the employers. There were rich people and poor people in Buddhism. And if you didn't have the people who had some money, you wouldn't have Buddhism because who do you think paid for it? <laughs> who do you think put the money, the food in the monks' bowls? Who do you think built the monastery? Usually the wealthy donors. So many Buddhists were wealthy. There's nothing in Buddhism that says, oh, you have to be impoverished, unless you're a monastic. If you're a monastic, you take a vow of poverty, but without working people, business people, merchants, uh, landowners, you would not have had Buddhism. It's just a fact. So what is this? This story is written for those people. And it's saying, Mr. Capitalist, if you're going to have some capital, use it well. Don't forget the poor. 
a lesson we need to remember today just as much as 2,000 years ago, maybe more. So if you do have some money, and I'm guessing most of you are middle class or, as they say, upper middle way Buddhists, you know, middle way, upper middle way Buddhists. If you are, remember, feed your family, have a roof over your head, see that your children get an education and have shoes. No problem. This day and age, you need a car. My car, well, I was told my car, I have to get a new car this year. My, I've been told my car is on the verge of, that's the end. All things are impermanent, including my Mitsubishi. I have to get a new car. If you need to get a good car, uh, a new car, fine. Don't forget the poor. Okay? You see how this is going to go? Let's continue. His immeasurable riches he used to relieve the poor. His faultless observation of the precepts served as reproach to those who violate prohibitions. Be an example to others of goodness. Through his restraint and forbearance, he warned against rage and anger. Do you think people in the past never got angry? They say uh, the Buddha never got angry. That makes me angry to hear that a little bit. I think people got angry in the past. The good Buddhists got angry in the past. I read sometimes Dogen. Sounds like he's a little angry about something. He writes it in the show again, so something's ticking him off. Don't get too angry. Control your anger. Step away from your anger as you can. Certainly don't do violence in anger. So we put Vimilakirti way up here to remind us who are down on earth, get as close as that as possible. Do I think Vimilakirti never got angry? I've never met such a person. And if I did, perhaps they need psycho, some psychiatric situation. I've never met a person so peaceful that they never, I saw a video, even the Dalai Lama getting angry at someone on the video and they got, someone had a camera and there's the Dalai Lama pointing his finger at someone a little teed off. Everyone gets teed off, don't explode, okay? Let's take Vermilakirti with some reason. Again, I said this is going to annoy or anger some Orthodox Buddhists who really think that they have the Buddhist heroes up here and that's how we have to be. And one day we're going to be enlightened and we're going to be perfect. We are never going to have a bad hair day. We are never going to make a mistake. And I say, good, when you're enlightened, maybe all of us in the next life, 10 lives from now, we will be this perfect person. In the meantime, at least, I'm an in the meantime until we get there, teacher. I'm not going to say never, never anger. I'm going to say get as close as possible. See how this is going? Let's continue. And his great assiduousness, I think that means, I had to look that up. You know, I, I, it was a while since I took the college boards. I think the assiduousness is care, taking care of things with uh, carefully. Discouraged all who thought of sloth and indolence. He was never lazy. Never lazy. Yeah, I'm never lazy. I never put off to tomorrow what I should have done yesterday. Okay. Again, try to be as not lazy as possible, okay? Considering his single mind in quiet meditation, he suppressed disordered thoughts. Again, even our Zazen, this word that the translator chose, Burton Watson, of suppressing thoughts. 
This is not our Zazen, is it? We're not about thought stopping, turning off all thoughts. There are meditations so you can do this. Again, what is it? It's thoughts come, don't grab them and get tangled in them. Again, it's a level of what is realistically and humanly possible as we go through this life. So we're not severing or suppressing all thoughts. Thoughts come, you let them be. Don't become tangled in them. Angry thoughts come, don't nurture those. Jealous thoughts come, turn away, like that. Through firm and unwavering wisdom, he overcame all that was not wise. Though dressed in the white robes of a lay person, uh, in uh, real Buddhists in Asia, uh, the monks wear monkish robes and the lay people wear white robes. He observed all the rules of pure conduct laid down for monks. And though he lived at home, he felt no attachment to the threefold world. Again, I'm going to tell you, of course, I'm attached. Attached. I love my family, my friends. I have a house. I like it. I try not to be overly attached and clinging to it. I like to think that, may it never happen, if my house burned down and hopefully my family escapes, I would dust up the ashes and find some other place to live. I try to, in my life, appreciate what is there, but not cling and strangle it. So if it's saying here he had no attachment to the world, I'm going to say, he says here he's got a wife and a, and a daughter. What kind of dad was he? No, I think he loved his family. Don't get me wrong. And they loved him. But he did not strangle them with love and cling and, and, and take hold so tightly that his, the knuckles on his hands turned white like that. You understand? One could see he had a wife and children. I guess he had sex, I'm assuming. Yet he was at all times chased in action. That's a real ambiguity, huh? He's chased, but he has a wife and kids. Maybe they were adopted, I don't know, but what could that possibly mean? Again, for the layperson, I think it means have sex. You know what would happen if no Buddhists had sex? There would be no Buddhism because we'd all be done in one generation. Think about it. Buddhists need to have sex. Please have sex. Please, right now, turn the camera off. Go have sex. Well, now, wait, wait till I'm done here. Okay, wait till I'm done. Please. Okay? Don't, again, go to such excess that you're sexually addicted, that it turns into something harmful and abusive, that, that you misuse it. We're going to see here for drinking a glass of wine, for example, or eating a piece of cake. If you're an alcoholic, have no alcohol. Do not get me wrong. But if you're not an alcoholic and you want to have a glass, okay, I do. I'm not an, I'm not an alcoholic. If I, I don't have to drink, I have a, two glasses of wine at most. I don't have three. And I'm not 18 anymore. I don't have my friends pull me out of a bar like I did when I was in college. That's for sure. 
everything in moderation here. If you're going to have a piece of cake, have a little cake. I'm on a diet. Have a forkful of cake. Don't have the whole piece. Like that. Don't go to excess. Don't be abusive. But here it's saying somehow he's living with no desire. I think it's, again, putting it up here and saying that we need to get in that direction without how do you know when you're acting badly? You know it. I have a glass of wine. It's fine. If I have five, you can tell there's a difference. One's too much. If I have a piece of cake, I know it. If I'm actually having so much cake, I'm in a sugar high. There's a problem. If you're having sex and it's a nice relationship, you know it. If you're having sex and you're feeling, you know, something's a little off and sleazy about this. Not good. Like that. One could see he had a wife and children, and yet he was chased at all times in action. Obviously, he had kin and household attendants. He's rich, man. He's even got servants here. Yet he always delighted in withdrawing from them. Another lesson for us. You have the things you have in your life. We practice in Buddhism the time that we need to pull back and turn the light within. You can either build your hut in the mountains, go to your cabin in the woods if you need for a time, or just in your living room, sit zazen, turn your light within. We know that we have to put the world down for a time like that. Although he wore jewels and finery, he dressed for success. His real adornment, adornment was the auspicious marks. He had the marks of a, a great... Uh, you know, Buddhist layperson, the big earlobes, you've seen the Buddhist statues, that kind of thing. Uh, a big tummy. I have a big tummy, so I must be a very good Buddhist. Uh, like that, you know. Although he ate and drank like others, what he truly savored was the joy of meditation. If he visited the gambling parlors, it was solely to bring enlightenment to those there. If he listened to the doctrines of other religions, he did not allow them to impinge on the true faith. Though well-versed in secular writings, his constant delight was in the Buddhist law. Again, here we have, okay, I just came from Las Vegas. I was in a couple of gambling parlors. I did not gamble. I'm not just not into gambling. But if I had put a little money down on something... Would it have been a sin as a Buddhist priest? Maybe. But here's the thing, okay? There's a difference between putting $2 down in Vegas and having a little laugh and putting your house, selling your house, taking all the money with your kids starving and putting it down on, a, on gambling in Vegas. Again, I think in the past, too, lay people probably played a poker game or whatever they did backgammon. I don't know what they did 2,000 years ago. Don't do it to the point of harm. A little friendly game is fine, like that. But not to the point that you're so addicted to it that basically your bank accounts are empty and the, the mafia is knocking on the door to break your legs. There's a difference, okay? Try to get as close as possible to this ideal. When we study the precepts, this is what I'd like you to aim. You're going to have precepts never to kill. Well, what do you do for cockroaches and mice? How about if there's an intruder in the house? How about if someone's invading your country? We're going to find that suddenly things start to get a little ambiguous. 
We're going to discuss that for the next three months in the precept studies. It says, uh, what else? Never tell a lie. What happens if your wife says, does my dress look nice? And you really hate the dress. What do you do? We're going to discuss this. It was true in the Buddhist time. It was true in Dogen's time for lay people. They had the same ambiguities. Samurai came and the samurai's wife said, what do you think of my dress? He said, oh, I have to go to sword practice. Like that. You always had the same ambiguities. Okay. Respected by everyone, he was looked on as foremost among those deserving of alms. Embracing and upholding the correct dharma, he gave guidance to old and young. In the spirit of trust and harmony, he conducted all kinds of business enterprises. But though he reaped worldly profit, he took no delight in these. No delight? Don't be overly attached to your money. Don't cling. Use the money you need to get your kids shoes and put them through school and have food on the table. Don't forget the poor. Don't be overly attached to the things you get. I'm going to get a car. I'm not getting a Mercedes or what my heart really wants is an Alfa Romeo. I says, I'm a kid. I want an Alfa Romeo. I confess it. I love those Italian cars. I'm not going to get one. They sell them here. I got the money. I could. I'm not getting an Alfa Romeo. Why? I think it's too much. I don't need an Alfa Romeo. I'm not trying to show off. I'm getting uh, probably another uh, Nissan. It's Japan. I get a Japanese car. Toyota, maybe. Okay. Maybe a hybrid because it's, you know, the, the thing to do that's wise these days. Okay. But I'm not, I'm not getting my dreamed of Alfa Romeo. For me, that I realize that I'm clutching it there, like that. Keep it simple, folks. Use your money well for good. Very simple. He entered the houses of ill fame, the bordellos, to teach the folly of fleshly desire. He entered the wine shops in order to encourage those with a will to quit them. I'm going to say that if you wish to take a vow of celibacy, if you wish or need because you have an addiction problem, never to touch a drop of wine, do that. Celibacy is a wonderful path for those who wish to be celibate. But what about this thing? He's going into bordellos. Let me, let me give you my take on this. 2,000 years ago, even in Asia, many places today, bordellos are accepted. It's a little shocking for many Americans, but uh, basically this was and still is many, many places basically legalized and open. In those days, lay people, especially men, women never had equal rights. <laughs> women stayed home while the men went out, okay? They would go to such places. There was exploitation of the women there, just like there is today. I guess mostly women, they had places with boys. Some men wanted to have boy companionship too. Exploitation, but people did not think of exploitation 2,000 years ago. But why? Everyone was exploited by everybody right up to the king. The king on down, everyone's exploited. Everyone's someone's serf or slave or poor. I don't think people thought of it in those terms. I had a fellow this week come to me in the Sangha, and he said that he had been invited, I can't go into details because it's private, he said I could discuss it a little, to an adult activity by a friend. And it made him uncomfortable. He's not you know, prudent about sex, 
But this adult activity that people engage in, it's very popular these days, was too much. And his friend, you know, didn't understand that he didn't want to join in with everybody. And, I, and he said, was I wrong? And I said, no, because for you, it's too much. It's too much. It's something that if you did at home with your wife, you might be perfectly comfortable with, but to do in kind of a public setting or on the internet or something like that, it may be overly doing. I can't, it doesn't matter what it is because we all have that line. You see something about sex where you go, oh, that's healthy, that's nice. Sex is good. And then you get to a place when you go, no, 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 that is, there's something demeaning or something, someone's getting hurt there. That's the line. So I don't know what the standards were back in those days. And I think it was more accepted that people did not have just one wife, especially men. And, and things were different. But the, the standard was exactly the same. What they're talking about here is if you want to be celibate, please do. It's a beautiful path to be pure, to put down all desire. Many people I know, even who are not Buddhist, choose celibacy. But I think what it's saying here is, if you're going to engage in sexual things, please go up to the point where you don't start to feel, no, this is too much, too much cake, too much wine, too much sex, something abusive, something harmful, something nasty here. Someone's getting hurt. This side of the line, okay. That side of the line is too much cake. Okay, that's what I think it's talking about here. So if it's, it says he's saying he's going into the wine shops, he's going into the bordellos, let's take it to mean that if you drink and you can drink, you're not addicted, don't overdo, sex, don't misuse. Our vow is, our precept we will see is don't misuse sex. We don't, as lay people, married priests in Japan these days, don't say, no sex, unless you choose. Okay, got it? We're going to have a long time to talk about that in the coming weeks. Let me get through this. In this way, the rich man, Vimilakirti, employed immeasurable numbers of expedient means in order to bring benefit to others. Using these expedient means, he made it appear that his body had fallen ill, fallen prey to illness. Because of his illness, the king of the country, the great ministers, rich men, lay believers, Countless others all came to see him and inquire of his illness and hear his talk. Okay, look, we take a precept to be honest, but you're going to see quite a few times here where we have something called expedient means, which is where, where Buddhists basically say, hey, it's okay to lie kind of <laughs> for a good purpose to get people to hear about Buddhism. This is an example. And we're going to see later, Vimilakirti apparently pretends he's sick, so everybody comes to hear the teachings. I had a grandfather who used to do that years ago, and we all knew it. He'd go, ah, my, I think this is it. Ah, ah. And all the family from all over would come to gather around his bedside. And we'd get there and he'd go, no, I'm feeling better. He just wanted everybody to come. And you know what? We knew it. And we came because we wanted to be together, too. So it's almost like we started to schedule it. Hey, uh, next week, grandpa's going to have his heart attack. Okay, I'm going to get a flight. And we knew it. And then two weeks later, grandpa's going, ah, I think it's it. And we all rushed down there. 
and have a wonderful time. And he'd feel better. One day, unfortunately, it was real. This is I'll dedicate this to my grandpa. One day, it, he really it really was. But until that time, we would all gather. Well, this is Villanova Curti's little white lie to gather everyone together to make this teaching. Villa McCurty then used his bodily illness, illness to expound the law to them in broad terms. Good people, this body is impermanent, without durability, without strength, without firmness, a thing that decays in a moment, not to be relied on. It suffers, it's tormented, a meeting place of manifold ills. These old Buddhists could say things five times to say one point more than a lawyer. When I was in law school, they said, don't just say something one time, say it three to five times. I hereby promise, vow, undertake, do endeavor, and shall do like that. No, just say I promise, right? Or we'd say uh, something like, do not take. I shall not take, remove, possess without permission. (laughs) No, just say you're not going to take it, okay? This is, so these old Buddhists would say things five times. What's he saying here? He's saying the body is like a bubble. You got it for a time, uh, and then it pops. Okay. Does that mean again here that he's saying that, oh, we should just get out of this body? This body's bad. No, again, we are best of both worlds. Buddhists have this body, take care of this body, eat healthy, do your exercise, maintain this body as long as you can. But like your house, do not be overly attached. To the body. I'm going to the gym now. One of the things I can do since I got my two vaccines, these guys are standing in front of mirrors, you know, with the thing and they're flexing. Oh, look at my, look at, I got the new line here, you know, and they're saying, oh, that's a great, you got the line there. My body, I got no lines. Oh, I got lines, but they're all in the wrong places like that. Okay. So, you know, the guy, the guy walks by, I, I suck my stomach in real quick. Can I walk like that? And then he gets, goes past and I, you know, let it out again. Um, it's too much. Don't be overly attached to the body, but take care of your body like that. So anyway, he keeps going. Good people, no person of enlightened wisdom could depend on a thing like this body. This body is a cluster of foam. This body is a dream, etc., etc. I'm going to skip down. Beset by 101 ills and anxieties. Accept that fact. We get sick. Okay. Again. Don't, it's not an extreme view. Savor the body, have the body, maintain the body. Don't be overly attached to the body, right? And if the time comes you get sick, accept that too. I know it's hard, but accept it too. Anyway, getting to the last paragraph here. Good people, a thing like this is irksome and hateful, and therefore you should seek the Buddha body. What's the Buddha body? also known as our true face, Buddha nature. Why? Because the Buddha body is the Dharma body, the real, the whole thing that I always talk about, the whole Megillah. It is born from immeasurable merits and wisdom. It is born from precepts, meditation, wisdom, emancipation, and the insight of emancipation. It is born from pity, compassion, joy, and indifference. Here's another thing. And I'm going to close on this today that I think is the lesson I'm going to offer you in what enlightenment is in, in Master Dogen's view and our view. Some people think that when you're fully enlightened, 
you just become all this and it's it's perfect you are buddha buddha is completely abiding by the precepts completely wise thoroughly emancipated just pure pity compassion joy for the world and 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 equanimity my lesson to you is this that's the up here the ideal but that's the saint that's up here but whenever in your life you act in such way you are bringing the saint to life you are acting in a saintly way you are manifesting the buddha you are manifesting enlightenment act with anger you're bringing the devil man act with peace and compassion caring you're bringing buddha to life with your hands and feet this is what we can do so i don't know when we get to be perfect buddha but in the meantime right now when you abide by the precepts live in a way that the precepts guide sit zazen act with wisdom when you bring equanimity to a situation when you bring pity for others compassion you are bringing enlightenment to life right here that was master dogen's vision of bringing enlightenment as a continuous process with every step and choice we make this moment next minute it may be gone that's the thing some people think you get it oh perfect enlightenment i'm done i'm done i'm now buddha no no we don't believe that sorry if you want a teacher who's going to tell you that you got to find someone else i'm telling you you can be buddha in your choice this moment act in a buddhaish buddha like buddha e buddha e way saintly we got saintly way so i'm going to say buddhaly way buddhaly way a buddhaly way and the next moment you're the devil again man that's our constant crossroads so when you want to bring the buddha body to life act with pity compassion joy and equanimity it is born of the various perfections such as alms giving when you give charity that's a buddhaly thing keeping the precepts being for tolerant forbearance is tolerance and gentle assiduous that's that word again i had to look up you know not lazy uh, having wisdom then you bring the body of the thus come one the buddha to life if you wish to gain the buddha body and do away with the ills that affect all living beings then you must set your minds on attaining supreme unsurpassed enlightenment and then the following chapters talk a little bit more about what that is got the point i don't see any perfect buddhas here i'm looking out you know what i see i see the perfection of buddha in every face i'm looking at that's all i got any questions i don't know if we have a page two here so i can't let us do we have a page two? Oh, we do wow man okay i'm gonna anyone got a question wave your hand max i don't know everybody's in the wrong place here max wherever you are what's your question 
Hi, I, I just had a question about um, what what you were saying about how we can be enlightened, embodying enlightenment one moment and embodying the devil the next. Is 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 that kind of what's meant by ceaseless practice? Is is striving to embody as much as possible enlightenment, or is that something different? That is precisely, I believe, what Dogen was meaning by ceaseless practice, because Dogen was not a perfect person. He was a very good person, I think. And he knew that it's this moment and this action and this next word we say and this next gesture and this next choice we make that determines what happens. And then the choice after that and the action after that, et cetera, et cetera. Yes, that's exactly what he meant, I believe. Thank you. Anything else? No? I, I love it when my talks just leave people so stunned that they, they're beyond words. I, I don't know if it's a good thing that I've actually explained everything and so no one has a question or just everyone's just sitting there in such shock. Thank you for joining us for the Treeleaf Zendo podcast. Treeleaf is an online practice place for people who cannot easily attend a Zen center due to health, location, work, childcare, or family needs. We provide netcast zazen, retreats, discussion, jukai, the support of fellow practitioners, interaction with a teacher, and all other activities of a Zen Buddhist Sangha, all fully online, accessible anytime, anywhere, without charge. Come build the future of online Zen community and practice.